0: Hey everybody, Um, I hope that all of you guys felt really challenged and encouraged as you were studying chapter 1 of James this week. I'm Nicole Hager, and I'm looking forward to walking through the chapter with you now that you've studied it on your own and that you've discussed it with other people. I want to let you know that before we start, though, that it's going to feel like we are barely scratching the surface as we talk through chapter 1. James packs so much into this chapter, and there's really just no way that we can give each of his thoughts the time and depth that it deserves in just one session. Luckily, though, most of what James addresses in this chapter, he's also going to circle back around to in later chapters, so we're going to be able to dive a lot deeper into these ideas that he presents in the coming weeks, so don't be discouraged if it feels like we're just kind of hitting the top right now. Um, So today, we're going to be in chapter one, which, like I said, is packed full of so many different topics. In just this one chapter, James is going to hit on facing trials, asking for wisdom, experiencing poverty and wealth facing temptations, knowing that God is the source of all goodness, controlling our tongues, and obeying the word in our actions. That is so much, you guys. We could easily do an entire Bible study on each of these topics and still have so much room to grow, but we get to try to tackle all of them in this short 35 or 40 minute podcast. Holy cow. Well, let's start with why is this? Why is James packing so much into this one section or this one chapter? Well, the first reason is that verses 1 through 18 are generally thought thought of as kind of the introduction to the letter. Um, They kind of read a little bit differently than the rest of the letter. And in this introduction, a lot of people feel like he's laying out um, kind of like a framework for us with a lot of the main topics that he's going to address or a way to view the topics we're going to address. Um, so it's sort of like when we looked at chapter one, it's like when you take a class and your teacher gives you an outline of all the things that you're gonna learn in the class on that first day. Well, that outline can seem really overwhelming, but then it becomes a lot more manageable when you start to break it down into smaller sections over the course of the class. So in the same way, reading chapter one can feel really overwhelming, but James is gonna make it more manageable because we're gonna keep circling back around to these themes and ideas and topics throughout the letter. And the second reason that it seems like he's packing so much in here is that at first glance it might seem like it's just this chaotic stream of different topics that aren't really related to each other, but when you really start to read the text carefully and asking what their context was and what they were going through that made him write this, um, we kind of start to see that the topics are a lot more related to each other than they first appear we're not looking at like a list of topics. We're gonna start to see today hopefully more clearly what James is really saying because we're gonna read this chapter more like a train of thought and we're gonna see how all of his ideas connect or flow out of each other. So we're gonna tackle the text today in three different sections um, and then as we go, we're hopefully gonna show how these sections and what's within the sections themselves are a lot more connected to each other than it might seem. So let's start with verses 1 through 12. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Version if you want to follow along in the same version, but you're welcome to follow along with whatever version that you would like. Um, But we're going to be starting with verses 1 through 12. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So let's start to break down this a little bit. Um, the reason I grouped all of this together is because a lot of people have noticed that it be- this section begins and ends with talking about trials and suffering. So it's thought to be sort of bookending one thought process. So let's start to ask the question, well, how is this one thought process? Um, Well, let's look at what he says. First, we have an initial short greeting in verse 1. And then immediately in verse 2, James gets right to the point and he starts talking about facing trials. He's not wasting any time here. You can almost feel like a sense of urgency, like his readers really needed to hear these words about facing suffering and trials. Um, We talked last week about how James is going to be using this letter to show us what it is a true believer really should look like. So, the fact that the first thing that he's gonna start talking about is facing trials, that should really carry a lot of weight with us. It's kind of like he's saying, you wanna know what your faith, if your faith is genuine, well, how are you responding to the trials that you're finding yourselves in? Or maybe a better question is, what is produced in me when I go through trials? Do hard times reveal my faith, or do they reveal a lack of faith? I want you to picture two trees. And each of these trees is the same kind of tree and they should have the same stuff growing on them. And they both are experiencing a hot, harsh sun beating down on them. Um, Now the trees, even though they're the same kind of tree and facing the same sun, these two trees look very different because as the sun is beating down on the first tree, the sun is causing that tree to wither and to shrivel up and to not have any fruit because, I mean, harsh suns can often do that. A lot of trees die when the sun is too harsh. The second tree though it's facing the same sun but this tree is full of life and the sun produced a lot of flourishing and a lot of fruit to harvest um, a lot of green and a lot of lush. What do you think that the second tree had that caused it to flourish? Well there's two basic things that a tree needs. A tree needs sunlight but it also needs water. So I want you to kind of picture under the soil for the trees now. Well, under the soil for this first tree is a dry ground. There's a weak root system with no access to water. Under the soil for the second tree, the tree that's flourishing is a thriving root system with a a really, really rich water source. So the sun in the first tree causes death because there's no water, but then the sun causes flourishing in the second tree because the sun combined with the water is what creates the life. So now let's take this analogy and think about ourselves. So the sun probably obviously represents trials and suffering in our lives. And these trials and suffering, they kind of beat down on us, kind of like a harsh sun beats down on a tree. Well, that water source that I mentioned, that water source is the spirit of God, which is active in our lives. It's shaping us, he's shaping us into his image. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit working in our lives, then suffering is probably gonna start to wither us spiritually. But if we do have the Holy Spirit, and our relationship with God is more than just empty words, then the Spirit of God is going to use that same suffering to produce spiritual thriving and maturity in us. And this is the idea that James is presenting to his audience. James's readers are going through some really significant suffering, Um, and kind of like we tend to do, they probably viewed their suffering as all bad. Um, Their suffering probably caused them to question God. They were probably asking things like, well, if God loved me, why would he do this to me? Um, They were probably viewing suffering through the world's eyes and not through heavenly eyes because the world teaches us to want all these things like comfort and wealth and security and popularity and power and control, among a lot of other things. But notice all of these things are things that can be taken from us and that trials and suffering can threaten but now, if we look at the other thing, God teaches us that we should want not these other things, but what we should want is to be like Him, to be conformed into His image, to be sanctified. Um, we want, we should want to possess the fruit of His Spirit. Now, all of that is something that suffering cannot take away, but it's the opposite; suffering can produce that in us, and that is why James says, says that we should find joy in our trials, because if our faith is more than just words, and if we truly have the Holy Spirit then the trials are going to grow us and they're going to move us towards a place place of spiritual wholeness. So think again about those two trees. If you remove the sun from both trees, well, what happens? Well, they're not going to produce any fruit because the answer isn't just to remove everything hard in our lives. The answer is not to remove the sun. The answer is to ask for the water. So in the same way, when we suffer, the answer isn't to ask God to just take everything hard away and then to feel abandoned or angry or bitter if he doesn't take those hard things away. The answer is to ask God for the water, is to ask God for his Holy Spirit, and to ask God that he is going to use that suffering to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. Um, Just an example of what this could look like. My husband, whenever we were first married, he was a missions pastor, and so um, we did some traveling and his first trip that he went on after we got married was he went to Nepal with another pastor friend um, at our church. And while they were in Nepal, they were meeting with um, a Nepalese pastor there who um, had had a really, really tough um, experience just throughout his whole time trying to lead people to the Lord. Um, people there were not open to what he had to say. He had story after story about being really literally chased out of villages by people wanting to beat him to death with sticks and stuff like he had experienced suffering that we had never experienced but my jeremy he kept on just saying that he had there was something about his relationship with the lord that jeremy was just like envious of he just said man the things that he has gone through has caused a richness to his relationship with the Lord that I, that I haven't gotten to experience. Like Jeremy could see firsthand how suffering had produced something beautiful in him. And it almost made him jealous of those experiences. Now we would never look at somebody who had been, who had people had tried to kill, um, and say, wow, I'm jealous of that. But if we look at what God is doing through that and how God uses that to produce a deeper trust in him and a deeper faith um, and deeper belief in his goodness, even when things around us don't seem good, then we start to think, wow, like I want those qualities. I want to have that kind of a deep trust in God. Um, So that's just kind of how that, that we saw that example firsthand. Because trials and suffering, they produce something beautiful in us. And James does not want his readers to miss what God is doing through their present situation. Um, Now we're going to move on a little bit in the text because it seems like we have a little bit of abrupt change in verse 5 because now James has been talking about suffering and all of a sudden he's talking about wisdom. So is this a new thought? Well, look at the end of verse 4. James tells us that trials are going to help us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 5, the statement starts with but... And so whenever something starts with but, it's still probably kind of connected to what came before it. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. So the word but clearly connects the thoughts. But also, before that, James says that we're not going to lack anything. And then after that, he says, but if we do lack. So that use of the double use of the word lack is meant to see that these thoughts are connected. So how is wisdom connected to trials? Well, let's start out by defining wisdom so that we know exactly what we're talking about. Um, One book that I was reading about the book of James was describing wisdom as the discipline of applying truth to one's life in light of experience. Um, That same book later on said that wisdom should enable a person to live responsibly and successfully. Now Webster's, if you go outside of the Bible even, Webster's defines wisdom as knowledge and the capacity to make due use of it. Now I want you to notice that all of these definitions describe wisdom as something that connects knowledge to action. It's having actions that flow from right knowledge. Now I used to think that being wise meant that you had these really deep insights on things or that you had um, a lot of answers to really hard questions. I mean, I've prayed so many times for wisdom, but I think I was praying for the wrong thing. Like I wasn't, I wasn't really praying for wisdom. I was praying for knowledge. I never realized I was only praying for the first half of wisdom because yeah, wisdom is knowledge, but if that's all it is, we would just call it knowledge. Wisdom is more. Wisdom is godly knowledge that leads to right action. I mean, think about it. What if somebody had this knowledge that there's a freezing lake over there and the water is dangerously thin and if you walked on it, you would probably fall in. Would it be wise for them to walk across it anyway? No. So having the knowledge is not what made them wise. What made them wise was living appropriately according to the knowledge that they had. So the knowledge of the truth does not mean that you have wisdom. It's possessing that knowledge and then acting on the knowledge. That's what means that you have wisdom. So think about this. James has just told his audience to respond to suffering in a way that's impossibly difficult. This thing that he just told them to do goes radically against how the world around them would have responded to suffering. Um, He's calling them to act in a way that is so, so hard. It does not come naturally to face suffering and say, I'm going to face this with joy. So here now, in these verses on wisdom, he's kind of comforting them by saying, hey, if you don't know how to make your knowledge of what you're supposed to do when you suffer lead you to actually doing it, ask God This is the kind of thing that God wants to give you, and he wants to give it to you graciously and not hold anything back. I mean, I think we hear people teaching on passages like this, because there's a few others throughout the scriptures that talk about asking in faith and that God will give us things. How many of us have heard people teaching that God is going to give us whatever we ask for if we have faith? There are some passages in the Bible that speak of God giving freely to anybody who asks, but they get so twisted and distorted because our human nature um, has this desire to make everything about us and what we want and what the world teaches us that we should want. James is not teaching here that God is going to give us whatever we ask for as long as he believes that he's going to give it. No, James is teaching that God calls us to some really hard things like seeing suffering through his eyes and not through the world's eyes. He calls us to find joy and spiritual fruit that suffering produces and to not be angry and bitter at hard stuff we go through. Um, then he's teaching us, yeah. That's easy to understand with your minds. It's so easy to get that concept, but it is so hard to do. It is so hard to let that knowledge enable us to act in wisdom and to walk it out in wisdom. So he encourages us that if we ask God for wisdom, that is, if we ask God to help us walk in the knowledge, if we ask God to help us apply and live out his teaching of finding joy and suffering to our own life, then God is going to answer that prayer because God is for us and he wants us to look more and more like him. That's the kind of prayer that God is always going to say yes to. Guys, it's so easy to join Bible studies like this because we think that they're gonna make us wise. We all wanna to grow to be mature followers of Christ. But it's one thing to learn these hard things that the Bible teaches and calls us to do. And it is a whole nother thing to take that knowledge and connect it to how we actually live every day. Now we can help you with that first part because we can learn all sorts of knowledge in this Bible study, but I can't make you wise. I can't make it any easier for you to apply the hard truths of scripture to your life. Only God can grant you that kind of wisdom. And how amazing is it that we are promised that he will always grant that wisdom when we ask him. When we understand what it means to have wisdom, I hope that it's more clear that these words James speaks about wisdom flow from his words about suffering. We need God to help us have the wisdom to actually experience finding joy in suffering, not just know that we're supposed to. And God promises to help us to do that if we ask. Um, as we move on in the text though, uh, we got to keep moving on because we're spending a lot of time here. Um, as we move on in the text, we're going to get to verse nine and it kind of seems like we're going to switch thoughts again here because now James is suddenly talking about rich people versus poor people. So how is this connected? Well, when we view this thought as connected to the previous verses, hopefully this is going to start to fill in some gaps for us because think about the source of the original audience's suffering. Now remember we talked last week, they had experienced a lot of persecution. It had caused them to leave their homeland. They were scattered all over the place. They were living as aliens in these foreign lands. A lot of them were suffering from poverty that comes with being displaced. And a lot of them were being mistreated by wealthy people that they were depending on for work. And they were depending on these people for survival. They were working the lands of the wealthy peoples um, that the wealthy people owned. So They were probably struggling a lot with this idea that a lot of their suffering was really wrapped around their poverty and their mistreatment of people who are wealthy. Well, what was the biblical truth that they needed wisdom from God to live out? Well, they needed to be reminded that worldly wealth is not the same as spiritual wealth. James just told them that God uses suffering to produce good and godly fruit in their lives. And now, when he's talking about wealth, he's pointing into an area that they are looking at the wrong things when they are considering what is good or what they should be desiring. He said back in verse 3 and 4 that suffering produces steadfastness and perseverance, and now he's showing the contrast of that in verses 9 through 11. He's reminding them, wealth does not produce st- steadfastness. Wealth does not produce perseverance. Wealth is here for just a little while, and then it passes away. So wealth is going to give you the opposite of what suffering gives you, is kind of what he's saying. It would have been really easy for one of James's original readers to look at their situation and think, man, Like, why isn't God delivering me from this poverty? If God loved me, he'd put me in the position of all all these wealthy landowners that I'm serving. He would meet my needs in the ways that I want him to. So James in verses 2 through 11 as a whole is helping his readers change the lenses in which they view their current suffering so that instead of seeing wealth as the goal, godliness and maturity and steadfastness are the goal. And they're aware that wealth can't bring that. So then he's going to wrap up this whole chain of thought with verse 12 by reminding them of the spiritual riches that come from persevering through the trials. He just showed them the emptiness of wealth and worldly riches, and now he's going to contrast that with, but remember, bookending that original thought with suffering. The suffering is going to bring those um, spiritual riches because if you persevere through the trials, that's what's going to produce what you really need. Wow, what a difference it makes to view these verses together. James tells them how to view the suffering they're facing. He encourages them so that they can ask God for the wisdom to live out their belief on suffering. He reminds them of the temporary nature of what they're most likely wrongly looking to as the solution to their suffering, and then again tells them of the eternal blessings that come when they face the suffering with faith. James is so much more intentional in his train of thought than we usually give him credit for. Um, So let's keep moving on and see if he's going to continue on this path um, or if he's going to keep on giving us some curveballs, because um, it, it does, again, it seems like James takes a bit of a turn in this next section, because now he's going to transition from, t- from talking about suffering and trials, and he's going to start talking about withstanding temptation. So let's read verses 13 through 18. Okay, James chapter one, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures." So the first thing I want to point out here is this word, temptation. James just spent a lot of time in the last section talking about trials and testing. Now in the original language, the word for trials and testing that was used in verses 2 through 12 is periasmos. I'm guys, I'm saying this wrong, I know I am, but I'm doing my best. I think it's periasmos. So here now, he's going to start talking about temptation. But the thing is, the original word for temptation in these verses is periazo. They both come from the same root word. In the original language, the words for trials and testing were so similar and came from the same root word for the, the word for temptations. They're all so related and they stem from the same word grouping. Now, because of this, it's been suggested by a lot of people that his use of the word trial in verse 12 is so similar to the word temptation in verse 13, that that's kind of James's way of guiding the reader to connect this thought process. Um, When I looked up the definition of that Greek word, periazo, and found that that was in 13, uh, one part of the definition said, "...to try or test one's faith, virtue, and character by enticement to sin." So basically, the words for testing and trials and temptation are so connected because a lot of times, the trials and the tests that we face are what cause us to be tempted to sin. So James isn't dropping this whole topic of being tested and having trials and starting a new topic of resisting temptation. No, what he's doing is he's acknowledging that with every outward trial we face, inward temptations to sin are going to come. Hard situations have a way of showing us the depths of our sin. Facing suffering is an outward trial, but inwardly it tempts us to doubt God's goodness or his love for us. Temptations often flow out of trials. Trials are the external things that happen to us, and those external trials can lead us on two contrasting directions. On the first hand, what we just read about in, this, in that first section, verses 1-12, through 12, trials can produce steadfastness and godliness in us. James made that clear in that first section, but now in this next section, James is going to show us the contrasting things that trials can produce, because if we don't look at them with faith and try to grow and find the joy in them, the alternative is that we're going to have temptation to sin in our trials, and temptation is going to lead us to not believe in the promises of God, but to look for the empty promises of the world. James gives his reader encouragement to find joy in what God is doing for their difficult situation in that first section. Now in this next section, he's warning them of the alternative. So think for a minute about trials and temptations. Who do we like to give the credit when our life is going pretty much how we want it to and when we're not struggling with any major sin patterns and things are going pretty well? Well, typically we kind of give the credit to ourselves. We kind of like to think, man, I'm doing pretty good. Like I've kind of got this whole life thing down pretty well. But what about when we face suffering and we start to feel the temptations that we hadn't felt before? Who do we like to blame? Well, we like to blame God. We start saying things like, man, how could God do this to me? Or is God even there? So basically we want to pat ourselves on the back when we're not face to face with the depth of our own sin. But then when God allows something into our life that reveals the sin that was lying underneath all along, we get angry with God for it. This is so backwards. And so James is really pointing out here who the source of good is and who the source of sin is. So again, human nature does not change because just as we do this, um, it looks like the believers that James was writing to did it too. So he makes sure to remind them that God is not the source of their temptation. He just spent this whole first section reminding them that God is the source of all good and he's going to use even the bad things to make good things happen. So now he's kind of pointing out, Don't blame God when bad things happen. That sin is within you. When you feel tempted because of your trials, that sin was in you. The temptation was inside of you all along. The trials just bring them to light. Um, We kind of like to look at the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And if we don't like them or if they're hard, we get really angry with God. We feel like he's withholding the good things from us that we think we deserve. So James just spent verses 1 through 12, again, explaining that is the wrong way to look at our external trials. God is good and he does through good through any and all circumstances, even the bad ones. And so kind of similarly, we like to look at our sin when we're tempted and blame God for making it so hard. Um, I'm sure that the readers are probably thinking, if only God wouldn't have put me in this position of poverty and persecution, Um, if only God, you know, had provided better for me, then I wouldn't be so tempted to sin. So James is reminding them that God is always good. Their sin was there underneath all along. God simply opened their eyes to it through through the temptation. So we need to train our eyes to see the goodness of God in all that we experience and own our own sin whenever it comes to light, rather than blaming God. Now, if you're still having a hard time seeing how verses 1 through 12 are linked to the verses 13 through 18, look at the two contrasting progressions we see in each section. In verses 1 through 12, we start with trials. And then in 13 through 18, we start with temptation. Now, these both come from the same Greek word. They both threaten our relationship with God. In verses 1 through 12, we saw a positive progression, kind of a positive road you can take. We saw this progression of trials that you face with faith, and it leads to perseverance and maturity and wholeness. Now, verses 13, we're seeing that same path's contrast, the contrast to that, the alternative. It's saying, on the other hand, verses 13, trials, they can also bring out temptation to sin, which if you give into it and you follow those temptations, it's going to end up bringing about death. So James, when he combines these two sections, sections that contain verses 1 through 12 and then 13 through 18, he's giving us kind of a complete picture of two paths that you can take when you're facing a hard situation. Now let's move on to the last section, Um, and James is going to start to get really practical and narrow on some specific sin issues. This is kind of the beginning of the body of the letter, so we kind of had, again, James is laying a framework for us in verses 1 through 18. Now the rest of the letter, he's going to be applying that framework to a lot of the specific sin issues that his readers were struggling with. Um, So there's an obvious change in how the section reads. It's less like this overarching wisdom and more very nitty gritty. He's kind of getting into the the nitty gritty things that they're struggling with. We're getting some specific instructions on what we should be doing and what not to do. And he's going to keep on referring to these concepts that he already laid out to us. Because it's interesting that just after he warns his readers of what happens when they give in to temptation and sin, now he's going to start addressing all these specific sin areas that they probably are experiencing. So it's like he's saying, don't give in to temptation. It leads to death. Now let's deal with some of the areas that you need to be reminded of the sin in. in. Um, so we're going to read the last section of chapter one together. That's verses 19 through 27. And then we're going to kind of see how it takes these truths and starts to apply them to specific areas. So let's pick it up. Verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But when he looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and un- this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So, what is the first specific temptation to sin that James addresses? It's anger. Now we know his audience had faced persecution and poor treatment from wealthy people and powerful people around them. They had been wronged by people time and time again. And what is usually our first response when we feel like we've been wronged by somebody? Well, it's usually anger. Sometimes we get angry at the people who are doing wrong towards us. And then sometimes if we can't put that anger back on them or take out our anger on them, what we do is we start to take out that anger on each other. We take it on the people we love. Um, James is reminding them here, hey, Don't get angry at the things you're going through. Anger is not going to produce the righteousness of God. And then he starts to turn them back to the truths of God that he just laid out. He reminds them of the implanted word, the word of God that's written on our hearts when we receive the Holy Spirit. And he reminds them that this is what's going to bring them the salvation that their souls truly need. So we see here, James isn't starting to give them a list of things to do to be saved because he clearly gave credit to the implanted, what he calls the implanted word when it came to salvation. He's not saying it's up to you to do the right things to get saved. He's saying... No, like the implanted word in you, like what, what God puts in your heart when he gives you his spirit, that's what saves you. So again, James is not contradicting Paul. He's not contradicting all of this other parts of the New Testament, kind of like we talked about last week, because he's not placing the importance of these outer actions as, as, like, as a being what leads to our salvation. He's giving that credit somewhere else, but he is showing what should be happening through them as a, as a result of what's been implanted in them. Now remember the two paths that James has laid out for us that can happen during trials. That first pl- path is facing those trials with faith, and that leads to perseverance and spiritual wholeness. The second path is letting trials cause us to give in to temptation, which ultimately leads to death. Well, what's happening here is James is showing them that their sinful anger is putting them on that second path of temptation and sin. And he's trying to point them back to the first path of faith and spiritual growth. Verse 19, again, it's this new section that's practical application of how we need to apply the truth that, that was laid out in verses 1 through 18. So we see James is contrasting the temptation of anger with the truth that God's implanted word can save us. And then again, in verse 22, he follows with encouragement, not just to know it, but to do it. So he's kind of echoing those words from earlier on seeking wisdom. If you need help applying and doing it to ask God. Um, And so he tells them, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And then he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Now remember earlier how he gave those instructions on asking for wisdom. Well, now it kind of looks like he's showing the opposite of wisdom with this whole idea of looking at it and then looking at your reflection and then forgetting. It's kind of like when you know something and then you just do the opposite. He's kind of showing the opposite of wisdom here. And so then he goes on to remind them, of where they're going to find what their souls truly want and need. Not in following their sinful desires when they're tempted to be angry, but in looking to that perfect law, the law of liberty, and acting on it. That person will be blessed. Um, And then he kind of wraps up this whole section on controlling anger with this strong statement. He says, If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So just in case there were still people who felt that they could know truth in their minds but not let it be reflected in their lives, James makes clear that either you have the Holy Spirit and fruit is being produced in your life or you don't have the Holy Spirit and your religion, not faith, but your religion is worthless because if all you have is some knowledge but you have not submitted your life to the authority of Jesus Christ and don't have the Holy Spirit within you, then all you have is empty religion and not true faith in God. And then finally, he wraps up the chapter with another contrast because he just told us what empty religion looks like. He gave us a picture of empty religion. Now he's going to show us the contrast to that um, in verse 27, and he's going to show us a picture of what he calls pure and undefiled religion. And he says, pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this seems like a very specific and narrow thing to visit orphans and widows, um, to wrap up this huge section. Um, this is a pretty consistent command, though, throughout the New Testament. So why do you think that this is? Well, think about all of the trials and temptations and everything that we've been talking about this whole time. What have the readers been thinking about their whole times? Themselves. Everything we've talked about is self focused. The readers were completely self-focused. We're, most of the time, completely self-focused. Like we all do, James's audience seemed to be completely focused inward on their own poverty, on their own mistreatment, on their own sin issues, on their own trials and temptations. James here is telling them that pure religion looks outward. Because in that culture, orphans and widows were completely helpless. That was a culture where without a man there was nobody nobody to protect you, nobody to provide for you, no way to earn an income, there was no public aid programs. They they were they had it bad. And so as bad as all of these displaced Jewish people had it, the orphans and the widows would have had it way worse. So James is telling them here. Hey, instead of being completely self-absorbed with your own problems, true faith is going to point you to focus on those in greater need than you. True faith points outward and does not only point inward. Um, And then he gives one more direct instruction at the end of this chapter. He says, be unstained from the world. Um, Now, for those of you guys who did the judges study with us last semester in that study, we saw a pretty dreary picture of God's people becoming incredibly stained by the world because they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land and instead were dwelling among them. And I kept on thinking that while I was reading this, that James is writing to kind of a, a, a group of believers who are in a pretty similar position that the Israelites were in, in the book of Judges, because just as the Israelites in the book of Judges found themselves living among all these foreign people in foreign lands, well, who is James's audience living among? They're living among foreign people and in foreign lands too. They're living among people who believed differently and worshiped differently and um, had different idols and um, all sorts of different things that were completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. And if if you guys were in the Judges study, you'll know that this ended very bad for the Israelites in the book of Judges. So it makes perfect sense that James is going to see the threat here and he's going to want to remind his readers not to let the world around them take the purity of their faith from them. Now, I know a lot of you guys didn't do the Judges study, but I am going to tell you that I will point back to it when things come up because I think that it's important as we study books of the Bible to start to see the threads that connect each of them to each other. And I think that that's another skill that I would hope um, the more Bible studies that you do, you're able to connect different books and different um, ideas and see how all these books of the Bible they kind of create a map that's all connected to each other. So, Um, I encourage you um, just as we do do more studies together to start looking for the things that tie books together because I think that it does really deepen um, your understanding of the word as a whole. Um, We'll look back on everything we've talked about today so far. You might notice we have spent all of our time together working on comprehension and interpretation. We haven't really done any application Because I really wanted to be sure that we truly understood what James was saying and what his words mean before trying to apply them. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of something to think about, and I hope that this really leads you to do some heart work this week and really trying to do some deeper application than maybe what would have come before doing all of this. Um, James is not giving a scattered list of commands that we need to follow and check off so that we can feel good about ourselves. He is laying out two paths we can find ourselves on when we face suffering. So this should really cause us to stop and reflect on our own patterns that we go into when we have hard things that come up in our lives. Let's start thinking about how do we apply this. Think of the hard situations that you have faced. Do you find yourself on a path of faith and joy and spiritual growth whenever you're in hard times or do you tend to find yourself on paths that are riddled with temptation and sin and despair now none of us are going to walk like walk perfectly through suffering every time like we're human we're probably going to jump back and forth between the two paths on any given struggle that we face face but if you take the time to really look inward think about that last struggle you had or maybe the biggest struggle in your life or what you're going through right now if you see a pattern in your life where you're always on that second path, if you feel like you've never experienced the Holy Spirit using a difficult circumstance to draw you closer to God, if you've never found um, per, like spiritual fruit being produced in your life through hard things, that might be an indication that maybe you need to go to God and ask God, have I just been practicing empty religion or do I truly have your spirit? And if you think that maybe you don't, you can ask God right now, Lord, give me your spirit. Let me submit to the authority of your lordship in my life. And God, help me to learn how to walk on that other path, that path that produces spiritual fruit in life. Um, And if you do feel like you do, if you know that you have the Holy Spirit, but you still struggle when you um, are in times of trial, if you're just on that other path too much, Just ask God every time he is going to answer that prayer. Do not let your suffering be wasted. Ask God for the wisdom to walk the way that he calls us to walk through suffering. Ask God for the eyes to see every situation that you encounter, good or bad, hard or not hard, suffering especially. Ask him to see it how he sees it and not how the world sees it. Because remember, God wants us to look more like him. These are the prayers that he promises to answer in our life. I want to close this lesson with an exercise. Um, I think that a great tool to practice when you're working on really comprehending and interpreting text is to try to paraphrase the text in your own words. So I'm going to do this exercise for you right now um, in hopes that you're going to start trying trying to do this on your own when you're studying. Now, when I do this, I'm not trying to rewrite scripture. These words are not meant to carry the same weight or truth as scripture in any way. This is simply a tool that's supposed to help us to understand a little bit better the big picture of what we're reading. So here it goes. I'm going to do my best to paraphrase chapter one or kind of sum up chapter one in my own words to try to capture James's full train of thought. And so if I were going to do this and if I were going to kind of write the same kind of letter that James wrote, my letter might sound something like this. Hi, friends. Y'all are in a hard situation, and I know you are facing some difficult suffering. I want to remind you that God is using your suffering to produce something beautiful in you. He is deepening and maturing your faith. I understand how hard it is to remember that, though, when you're in the middle of it. So if you ask God for the wisdom to help you connect that truth to what you actually experience and feel, he will answer that prayer. He wants you to look more like him. That's a big part of why we have the Holy Spirit. The world will try to convince you constantly that wealth is the answer to your current trials of poverty, but I want to remind you that wealth passes away and worldly wealth pales in comparison to the spiritual wealth that comes from persevering in your faith, even through trials. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. These trials you're going through are probably going to bring up some sin in your life that you didn't even know was there. You're going to experience temptation, but God is not to blame when you feel tempted. That sin was in you all along. God just used the trials you're going through to show you what was really there, and thank goodness he did so that you can repent from it and grow. God is always good, and he's using both the outer trials as well as your inward temptations to lead you to repentance and godliness. Now I know it's tempting to be quick to anger to those who are wronging you or to let your hardships cause you to take out your anger on each other, I want to remind you that speaking rashly and out of anger won't bring you what you truly want, which is to look more like Jesus. Receive the word of God, which was implanted in you when you received his spirit. That is what can save you. And you will see that your actions are going to be changed because of it. Let what you know in your mind come out in your actions when you're tempted to speak in anger. Focus less on your own hard circumstances and instead focus outward and help those who have it even tougher than you, the orphans and the widows. Stop letting the world dictate to you what you should want and deserve. Instead, seek God with your whole heart. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much um, for these um, verses, this passage of scripture, Lord, this chapter one of James. It is so full and so rich, and it is calling us to something that is impossible to do on our own. So God, I pray right now just for the presence of your Holy Spirit in all of our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us when we are in good times and with us when we are in hard times. And I pray that those hard times that we would experience and find the joy of um, what you are doing in our lives through it, that we would not miss what you are doing because we're too focused on what we think we want and what the world tells us the answer is. God, I pray that your spirit would help us just to be like the tree that has an ample water source, that we would have your spirit letting those trials produce spiritual fruit in our lives. Um, God, we love you, and I just pray that you would allow us to um, continue to have these passages come throughout our minds that we can um, have a rich application and be changed, truly changed because of it. It's in your name we pray, amen.